we prepare to open the, the word, we would invite you to open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, and to verse 19, beginning in that verse and going on down through the end of the chapter. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, as we read God's word together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what God's word says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The wretched man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thank you. Please be seated. Our Father, we come this morning grateful for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. And that even as Abraham has pointed out in the scripture we just read, that it contains the essential ingredients that we need to turn to you, to repent. We thank you and praise you that you have given it to us and that today we have the opportunity to receive and respond to it. Lord, we thank you that your word is clear, that it is not written in such a way that it is indecipherable, but it clearly spells out who you are, what you're like, and what you require, and how we may know you. We thank you that it is sufficient, that we don't have to gather up several other books or uh, go on a, a journey to a high mountain or into some deep valley to find more information, to find out how to know you, but it's there in your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is authoritative, that what we read in it doesn't leave us guessing or wishfully thinking that maybe if we trust in what you've said that it might come true. But it's from you, and we can count on it because it is from you, and it does not change. And we thank you for all these things, Lord. We thank you that it is clear and necessary. We thank you that it is sufficient. Lord, we just praise you for giving us these words. And says, now as we open it, may you open our hearts to yield and to understand. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Back in 1967, there was a movie that was released. It was a box office hit. The name of it was Cool Hand Luke. Probably most of you in this room have never seen the movie. It starred the great movie star at the time, Paul Newman. And it was well received and had many Academy Award nominations. And yet I would suspect that perhaps the most enduring thing of the movie for many people, maybe even for most people, is not the movie itself or even the nominations it received, but one line from the movie that has endured down the, down the years in our culture. It goes something like this. It talks about the fact that what we've got here is failure to communicate. Some of you maybe have heard that phrase and you don't even know where it came from. Well, now you know. Failure to communicate is a major problem. It's a problem among human beings with one another. But I'm here this morning not to talk first and foremost about that, but to talk about the failure of communication from a holy God to a sinful people. Now, failure to communicate, failure to communicate successfully could be, on the one hand, the fault of the communicator. Perhaps the communicator speaks indistinctly or doesn't really say what needs to be said. It can be in the means of communication. For example, if I'm trying to send a text to someone to communicate to them and my phone doesn't work or their phone doesn't work or the system in between breaks down, that text may not go through and there's a failure of communication by the means. But our God has made his word, his, his nature and what he expects, as we're told in scripture, apparent to all. That in creation itself, his very existence, his nature, and his power are clearly perceived in what has been made. The fact of what God communicates in that sense is known to all. And it is available to all. So I would suggest this morning that if there is a failure of communication between God and us, it is on the recipient's end. That is that we either neglect the word that he sends or we reject the word that he sends. The problem that comes from either of these responses is that it leads to great misunderstanding. In fact, I would suggest that our scripture that we've read this morning illustrates some of those misunderstandings that are pervasive to this day. I would suggest this morning it would be fitting for us to take a look at some of those things because while God has faithfully communicated to us and continues to do so, to neglect or reject that communication leads us to a misunderstanding with catastrophic consequences. First, let's look at one of the miscommunications, one of the misunderstandings that occurs, and really he, he addresses it in verses 22 through 26 where he, he talks about the what happens in the afterlife? We read about how there was the poor man who was carried by angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man died and was buried, and being in Hades, he was in torment. We read about how he, he asked Abraham to send Lazarus to come and to put a drop of water on his tongue. And Abraham answered and said, there's a chasm between us. And even if somebody wanted to, we couldn't. Plus, he pointed out that it was fitting that things were as they were. That the man who was with Abraham was where he was supposed to be. 
and that the man who is in Hades, suffering torment, we would also say hell, because that's what he describes, being in flame, that that was where he was supposed to be. One of the things that is a pervasive misunderstanding is about what happens after life, that that is misunderstood or neglected. First of all, there is a popular idea that says that the hereafter is either better off for most, if not all, or that there simply is no afterlife, that the brain activities stop, your body goes in the grave, and that's the end of you. But the scripture points out that that is simply not the case. And as far as it being a better place, well, look at the text before us. But I would begin, though, with the good side of it, because that's where the scripture begins. In verse 22, we read about a man who was suffering from starvation, illness, and neglect. And he was taken from that condition to Abraham's side in paradise, in heaven. He, he went from a, an absolute terrible condition in this world to a glorious one in the next. Notice this points out a few things. First of all, that life continues even when the body dies. If we believe that the, the end of the body is the end of life, we misunderstand the reality of things. The scripture points to that, and it has pointed to that all along. Secondly, that there is a place of mercy. That this man, though he was suffering in this life and, and would apparently have no hope, upon his death, he found that there was not only hope, but there was something greater than he could have experienced in the life in the body. Thirdly, that there are those who are in the life to come after this life who are conscious of their condition. They are in relationship with others in that condition and they are able to communicate. They have memories, they have speech, and they have experience of that next life. In the case of this man who was carried to heaven, the scripture tells us that angels were involved. He's lying on the, on the, uh, outside this man's house. At some point, he dies. And for all the world, it looks like a, a pathetic death. But from heaven's side, God considered him worthy to dispatch not an angel, but angels to pick up this man and carry him into the presence of Abraham and ultimately of God himself, actually, we can know, therefore, that this is God's decision. This is God's activity. And God doing it, God will not undo it. What a glorious position he's in. And I would point out one other thing, though this text itself doesn't specifically mention it, but on the authority of other scripture, this man is not a unique case. That others who die will go into the presence of paradise as well. The Lord spoke of that on the cross to the thief who was dying, who believed in him. He said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is one of the outcomes. There's another outcome that we need to look at because this would give us the fuller picture. Scripture also shows us there was a rich man who was plunged from a luxurious life to a horrific existence after death. Like the other, his life continued too, even when his body died. Like the other, there was a place, but in this case, not of mercy, but of severe judgment. Thus we see there is mercy 
and judgment present after this life. He goes on to say also that there are those, in this case, this man is also, though he is in the place of judgment, he is also conscious, he's aware of relationships, he's able to communicate, he has memory. These things are present too with this man as well. Now, unlike the other man, it doesn't say specifically he was carried there by angels, but he got there somehow, didn't he? And he was dispatched there just like the, the poor man who died was brought there by the will of God. This was also God's placement of this man. And like the other man who received mercy, this would not be a unique case either. This man will not be the only inhabitant of this, place, this fiery place. So the scripture tells us about this reality. One of the things that's often said at the time of someone's passing are these words. That is, they're in a better place now, or at least they're no longer suffering. That is sometimes true, but I hate to say it, but I must. Sometimes it isn't true. Sometimes they are now suffering. Sometimes they are in a place where it is worse than where they were before because it is the outcome of their life and the misunderstanding that they had. It is true for some, like Lazarus, he is in a better place. He is no longer suffering, but it is not true for others like the rich man. On the one hand, we need to guard against merely sentimental, wishful thinking. It's easy for us to just wish that somebody would be in a better place. And to, to one extent, that speaks well for us, that we desire things to be better for people. That's a good, good sentiment. But we must govern our speech according to what God has revealed to be true. And what he says here is that this condition was not so for that rich man. Jesus put it this way, speaking out of, of Matthew 7, 13 and 14, I'll paraphrase him. He says that the, the gate is narrow that leads to life, and few there are who find it. But the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. Scripture shows us that there are these outcomes, and on, all too often, this outcome is thought of by, in wrong terms because we misunderstand what God has said. We need to guard against wishful thinking. Scripture shows that the Lord is the judge, and the word tells us the basis of judgment. And that is, for this rich man, it was faithlessness. Faithlessness. Now, what do I mean by that? One of the things that the Scripture shows us is that God has given us certain commands. He has told us how we are to live. He's also showed us that all of us have failed to keep those commands, every one of us. And as Paul writes in Romans 1, the outcome of that rejection or refusal to obey God is judgment. He calls it death. And what we've just described here about this man is spiritual death, this rich man. How did he come to be there? Is he there in that place because that's what happens to rich people? And people who are impoverished, they get to go to heaven? The problem with that 
summary or that outcome of it, that judgment of it, is that Abraham, with whom this man was lying, sitting up next to him, Abraham was a rich man. And he was paired with this impoverished man, and yet they both were together. How is it that that could be? May I suggest this morning, because the scripture reveals it to be the case, that we are saved by grace through faith. And that Abraham, as Paul would later write, would be the very example of faith, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that this man, though he was suffering and in need and in, in sick, still nevertheless trusted God. Whereas the other man was trusting in something else. He was trusting in his riches. He was trusting in something or someone else other than God. And he did not give regard to the word of God. And his life reflected his worship. He worshiped something or someone other than God. Scripture tells us in 1 John Beginning in chapter 2, verses 15 and following, John writes this as a word of warning. It's in God's word. Here's what it says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And listen to this. And the world is passing away along with its desires, passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So there's a warning to put one's faith or trust in riches and wealth, to make that one's object of desire or hope, is to place one's hope in something that is going to be gone. And when it's gone, so is that person's hope and trust. We don't need to carve idols out of stone or wood and make them look like an object to have idolatry. We can put uh, other things as objects of worship, whether it be money or status or power or relationships. Anything that we have, we can make as an object of worship. But the outcome of it will be absolute failure. Reading in 1 John and in chapter 3, the next chapter, here is another word on this matter. It says this, By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John writes of the fruit of faith. He is not teaching that we are saved by our good deeds. But he is showing that those who are saved by grace through faith will bear fruit in their lives that shows the reality of a living, vital relationship with God. If we are children of God, we will bear a family resemblance. We won't do it perfectly in this life. We've sinned and we've stumbled. We've committed sins by disobeying God, both by disobeying things and doing what we shouldn't and by failing to do what we should. We have imperfect thoughts, imperfect actions, imperfect words. But our salvation is not contingent upon our having perfect actions, thoughts, or words, but upon the grace that God has given through the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all who have faith in him, 
We have forgiveness of sins and a right standing with God. And yet there's also fruit, which points to the reality of relationship with God. And that's what he's pointing out here. This man, this rich man, had much blessing in this life, but it became an idol to him. The other man was not saved because of his poverty. He was saved because he had faith in God. We'll get to that more in a minute. So faithlessness brings judgment. Faith leads to mercy. And faithfulness is a result of God's mercy through grace expressed by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We misunderstand what happens in the next life if we only focus on thinking things are going to work out fine. There's another thing that, that another misunderstanding, and that is to misunderstand based on the present circumstances. What do I mean by that? Back at the, a little bit earlier in verse 19, we read about the rich man having been clothed in purple and fine linen. He ate sumptuously every day. He had a, an estate, a home. He had a gate. And this poor man was laid there. And in contrast, he was covered with sores. He was, if you will, clothed with sores. He didn't have actually a proper garment or proper garments because the dogs could come and lick those sores. They had access to them. Not the cute little puppies from the house, though that wouldn't be desirable either, but dogs from the street came and licked this man's sores. According to the understanding of the time and the understanding of many today, quite frankly, there was the belief that financial prosperity meant that you were in God's favor and that adversity in life meant that you were being chastened or judged by God. The scripture shows that isn't necessarily the case. We have a saying that uh, past performance is the best indicator of future performance. And some people will take that and they'll say, like the rich man, if he gave any thought to it at all, things are going well for me now. I must be in good standing with God. Therefore, I can expect more of the same in the future. Conversely, some people think like the, uh, that same way if they're in the condition of the poor man. They'll say, man, things are rough. God must have it in for me. I must have sinned against him or he just doesn't even notice me. And things are never going to change. But the scripture shows that just isn't the case. There is a great adjustment coming based on God's judgment. And there will be different outcomes because of a different basis. See, it's easy to look at the present circumstances. If, if somebody is living the way they want without regard for God and things are going well for them, first of all, several of them will say, ah, there is no God. I'm doing this on my own. I deserve to live it up. I deserve to have this. I've gotten all this either because, one, I've worked real hard and I've deserved this, or two, it's been given to me and why not enjoy life? You only go around and once in life, grab the, all the gusto you can. Uh, live, eat, drink, and be merry. Secondly, some will say, well, if there is a God, I must be okay with him. Look at how things are, are going. I'm not being struck down by lightning. So he must be pleased with what I do. Or some will say, well, I've read the word enough to know that some of the things I'm doing are in contrast with that, but he's, he's not striking me down. So he must not really matter to much. He's, you know, he may not approve what I'm doing, but he's harmless. Because look, nothing bad's happening, right? The problem with that is such ideas show a, an, a, a, an illusion 
And one day that illusion will be broken. If not before judgment, certainly at death. The, this hope that somehow God is, is either, one, not involved, or two, involved as a, uh, an indulgent daddy in the sky is sadly and sorely wrong. Oh, my goodness, that, that cannot be. On the other hand, there are those who look at their present circumstances and, like the poor man, uh, are suffering. And they could say, man, there's just no hope. And if that's the way things are, then I, I, I don't even have any hope in God. Thanks be to God, that wasn't this man's case. His name, we are told, is Lazarus. Lazarus. That's a Greek form of a Hebrew name, Eleazar, which means literally God has helped or God is help. His parents would have named him that name, I take it. And somehow in, in naming him that, though they, I'm sure, desired that to be the case, it turned out to be fitting because God in his mercy made it so. God did help him. But we might say, wow, well, that's pretty wretched help. His life was pretty miserable, wasn't it? Compared to this rich man, uh, this guy had it rough. How can that be somebody whom God is helping? And yet God was with him. You know, one of the things that we, 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 we can face, and, and some people even take their lives with this in mind, they have the idea things are rough, the way I feel is terrible, I don't see any prospect for things getting better, and that I don't see any prospect for the way I feel getting better. The scripture puts that to the lie. There is hope with the Lord. Things will not continue as they are now, always in this life. Even within this life, God is able to break in and change and rescue. And the scripture gives replete examples of that. But also, we know that even when the Lord does bring us from this life, at his timing, he will bring about a change, particularly for those who are trusting in him. They will bring about a good change, I should say. Lazarus' name indicates that he had faith in him. The Bible shows that there is a great deal of suffering that occurs in life. Some of it is suffering that occurs to everyone. We become sick. We have relationship issues. Sometimes people we love die. We ourselves face that. We see sometimes financial problems, all kinds of issues that come. But you know what? Scripture also shows that sometimes because we are God's people, if we are believers, we will encounter problems that result from our being God's people and believers. And yet, the scripture also shows that God gives grace to those who are his. One of the things we can look in scriptures and see is that the suffering that does occur need not cause us to believe that our life is ruined. The apostle Paul would write and talk about what he went through, how he was shipwrecked multiple times, he was beaten multiple times. He was arrested multiple times. He was stoned with stones once and left for dead. He was called all kinds of names. He was vilified. He was arrested and ultimately he was executed. But near the end of his life, he would write about how he was content. He even talked about 
writing from prison, he wrote to the Philippians and said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In Acts, we see him in prison, in chains, singing hymns. Was he insane? Or was he in touch with this reality? That he had hope in a God who would help him even in the midst of his trials. I vote for that because the scripture shows that to be the case. What appears to be prosperity in this life can sometimes be a cover for real danger. The real danger comes to the comfortable and complacent. The real danger comes to those who think that because they are well off now, they'll be well off then. My friends, the definition of well-off needs to be in accord with Scripture. And those who are right with God through faith in Jesus are well-off, whether they're rich in this life or not, whether they're healthy in this body or not, whether they have esteem and status in this life or not. Those who are in Christ are well because it is well with their soul. But if your body is healthy and sound and you have lots of money in your bank and in your stocks and they're doing well and you have homes and cars and all these things, but it is not right in your soul, you are impoverished. And one day that will be made abundantly clear in the most stark way you can imagine. And the scripture reveals that to us. We need to be right with God. Stop putting it off. Turn to the Lord. Cry out to him. Cause your hope to be in him and not in someone or something else. Don't be comfortable if you don't know the Lord because you will be uncomfortable eternally unless you turn to him. If you are in distress this morning, look to the Lord in hope and cry out to him. Both those who are comfortable in this world and those who are in distress need to look to the Lord because it is him that we who is the one who provides what we need. And finally, briefly, one other misunderstanding, and that is with regard to the word, the word itself. And we see that as we get to the latter part in verses 27. We read about how the man in hell, when he's told that that, uh, he cannot get a drip of water on his tongue because uh, there is no way for, uh, for Lazarus to cross the great chasm that's been placed, This condition is fixed. The judgment that's upon this man is fixed eternally. The paradise that has been now given to Lazarus is fixed. This man instead asks Abraham then to send Lazarus to his father's house so he can bring a word of warning to his five brothers. Send Lazarus. Send someone from the grave. Send an impressive presentation. Send a dramatic word. To which Abraham answers, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Moses, of course, what would have been the first five books of the Bible, what we would call maybe by known as the Torah, other words to describe that. The prophets, more words of the Bible. And at the time Jesus was, was giving this story, the Bible consisted of what we call the Old Testament. So what he's really saying, what Abraham is really saying is, They have the Bible. Let them hear what the Bible says. That's the place to go and get this warning. It's instructive to see what the man says in response to Abraham. Verse 30, he said, no, Father Abraham. The first word out of his mouth was no. Why would he say that? If I might 
I think it was something, his reasoning was something like this. It didn't work for me and it won't work for my brothers either. The word itself is insufficient. They need something spectacular. They need something else. They need more explicit empirical proof before they'll be persuaded. And upon hearing that argument, Abraham says this further. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the Bible, neither will they be persuaded or convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What he's saying is this. There is sufficient warning. There is sufficient communication in the word for people to know what is needed to be right with God. And that is what God has given. And if we think that something in addition to that will lead people to God, we're mistaken. This is God's appointed means to understand how to be right. And it points us to Jesus Christ, to faith in him. Today, there are people who are demanding, well, if I just had more empirical evidence, if I could see God through a telescope or maybe see evidence of him through a microscope, if we could do an archaeological dig somewhere and I could come up with something, that would convince me that's a delusion. It is, unbelief is not based upon lack of empirical evidence. Heavens declare the glory of God. The creation itself attests to his existence and his power and his eternal nature, his divine nature. No, more evidence wouldn't convince. And we saw that from the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus himself and literally of his friend Lazarus, who was dead, who rose from the grave. And people wanted to kill Lazarus because people were believing in Jesus because the Lord had raised him from the grave. And they would crucify Jesus in unbelief. Praise be to God. He used that death as a means of atoning sacrifice to pay the price that God's people would be saved and would have eternal life through faith in him. What a wonderful God we have. My friends, the fact that this man didn't believe and that his brothers, it appears, he didn't think they would believe unless they had greater, something greater than the word, that was a delusion. I'm afraid that today many churches share in that delusion. Rather than proclaiming the word, they proclaim all kinds of other things. They hold forth a promise of fun or other philosophies or all kinds of activities or there's all kinds of things they say. Sometimes they will say the word but we also have these benefits and we want you to come and receive these benefits from us. And they're hoping to somehow to slip under the radar of the word and maybe people, some of them will be saved. My friends, don't be ashamed of the word. Abraham wasn't. Jesus wasn't. Paul wasn't. The saints down through the ages aren't. We shouldn't be either. Don't try to put something else equal to or above the word as a means of persuading people to follow the Lord. A smooth, polished presentation, attractive things might persuade people to make some kind of a decision, but it will not be a decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be something else. It will be a, a, a fixation on an idol because it is the word that God uses. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. It is the spirit who gives life, not the flesh. So this morning, there is a much misunderstanding there's misunderstanding about the nature of the life that comes after this life. There's misunderstanding about the, the consequences of 
our present condition, if we're in prosperity now, it doesn't mean we'll be in prosperity then. If we're in adversity now, it doesn't mean we'll be in adversity then. It's our relationship with God that matters. And finally, we need to understand the word rightly. That it is God's appointed means of communicating to us what we need to know to follow him. God's way of addressing all of these misunderstandings is through the faithful communication of his word. And church, we must trust it, we must share it, and we must practice it. And part of that means that we must pray for God to bless its use as we share it with those around us. We see that occurred in Acts 16. There's a beautiful story of how the Apostle Paul and those who were with him went into Philippi. And as they were speaking the word, the scripture tells us that, that the Lord opened a woman named Lydia's heart to believe what Paul was saying. Who opened her heart? The Lord did. To what did he open it? To the word that Paul was sharing, which was the gospel. My friends, we need to trust the Lord to use his word. And that's how people are saved. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that's how you were saved. By grace through faith, because you believed the gospel and you're trusting in Jesus Christ. Lazarus was looking to God, even in the midst of his trials. The rich man was not, and they both received the appropriate outcome. One being with God eternally, one being separated from God, except for his wrath, eternally as well. God has faithfully and clearly communicated the truth through his word. And that word points us to Jesus Christ. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus Christ. And his word attests to that. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we are grateful this morning for your word. We know that it is from you, and we thank you that it points us to you, that it has not changed in these intervening years, that the basis of being right with you is still by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to set aside the idols that beckon us, that perhaps delude us today, and grant us the grace, Lord, today to not delay, for you have not promised us another day, but today, while we hear your voice, grant us to not harden our hearts, but to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen.